Never stop learning. NSL Double Talk, featuring Jill Karkman and Bronson Van Wyk. Their topic today is the theater and psychology of parties and gatherings. Jill is an award-winning author, writer, and actress based in New York City's Upper East Side. A common theme in her work is a critical examination of the lives of wealthy women in her city. Her 2007 Momzillas was adapted into the Bravo television show Odd Mom Out. Jill has written over a dozen books and over 100 articles that have appeared in top magazines. Jill earned her undergraduate degree from Yale University. Another Yale alumni, Bronson, founded Van Wyck and Van Wyck with his mother, Mary Lynn, in 1999. Since then, Bronson has planned events around the world from weddings to fashion shows, a presidential inauguration, the Democratic National Convention, and the openings of New York's High Line and Hearst Tower, and most recently, the St. Regis Ball Harbor. Bronson has designed opening night for the San Francisco Opera and has produced exhibitions at the Whitney Museum of American Art and the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum. He has worked with Sean Combs, Beyonce, Alicia Keys, and Hugh Jackman for the Ford, Rockefeller, and Mellon families and for the last three presidents of the United States. All right, cool. Hi, this is Jill Kargman. Hi, it's Bronson Van Wyck. I'm really happy to be here with you. This is really fun. I'm so happy to be here and I actually can't believe that I just was with you 24 hours ago. I know, and we'll be in another 10 hours. So full disclosure, Bronson and I are 45 and we met at 18. So it's been a while and I'm so proud of you because I could have called this. I am not the Oracle at Delphi, but I knew when I met Bronson freshman year of college that if I could buy stock in people, I would buy in Bronson Van Wyck. Oh my God, that's been, uh, there've been some ups and downs though. Well, that's life, but I feel like overall Um. professionally, you have ascended to, I think of you as the Meryl Streep of event planning. <laughs> and, and I I'm knew, glad you do, because, you know, I went out to L.A. to be an actor at one point. I didn't know that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I didn't know you were a set designer for Star Trek. I mean, you have had many careers. You worked in politics, right? I did, yeah. I mean, I guess I thought that was what I was going to do. I worked on the Clinton campaign. I'm from Arkansas. So half the state was working in some capacity on that first campaign. And then I went to the State Department. That was my first job after college, actually. Illustrious career, you know, diplomats from around the world. It's just, they're embarrassed right now, I think. Mm. No matter and, what. And broke, because they all and have broke. to have lawyers. Parties are way more fun. So <laughs> I want to talk a bit about Born to Party, Forced to Work, Bronson's incredible book, 21st Century Hospitality. And it looks like a beautiful, shiny, giant Wonka bar. <laughs> And there's a disco ball in the middle. You've traveled so extensively. You've thrown events for all kinds of, you know, Illuminati, incredible people. But most of all, this has so much heart. And your work with non-for-profits to me is especially fascinating because you have these activations that give people a visceral reaction to what they're coming to support. Can you talk a bit about your non-for-profit work? Sure. You know, I've never been in a position to be able to write million-dollar checks, to an organization, but we can make an event look like a million dollars and we can make the people who come to an event feel like a million bucks and maybe in doing so create a a relationship between them and a cause that inspires or motivates them to do that thing that I can't do. So we've been really careful about the charity events that we get involved in because we actually do them for free. So when we do a not-for-profit, we don't actually charge. We're working purely as volunteers. We do have a business to run, so we can't do that all the time. The organization that I'm 
probably most involved in still is the High Line. So with something like the High Line, I mean, at the time, going back 20 years, the High Line was this derelict- uh, Oh, needles. Yeah, industrial wasteland. I mean, it was really, that's right. I mean, it was needles. People were up there doing drugs. But what was really interesting were there were microclimates because you had sort of buildings that cast shade at interesting times of the day next to a steam duct. And you would end up with a tropical ecosystem that was 20 feet by 20 feet. And you had ferns that only grew in South America there. And you had apples that only grow in Washington State. Wait, there's like feral highline apples? There were feral highline apples. There were all kinds of things like that because trains had come through there from all over the continent. And so sometimes there would be seeds. You know, you think about Australia and they didn't have, I don't know, uh, cats or mice or something, you know, and then the the Botany Bay, the ship came and they dropped off two cats and now there's yeah, a feral cat then- problem. <laughs> um, that, that was the high line. So it was this incredible ecosystem. And the other thing that I thought was so cool about it was it was this two mile long strip of Manhattan. You can't make two, two mile long strips of no. Manhattan anymore, right? So I thought this thing, it's too good. It'll never happen again. It needs to get saved. So we started with this idea and we started hosting events to try to get people engaged with it. And the way that we would do it was we would bring it to life for them in some way. I remember the first benefit that we ever had for it. We had no money. We had no space. We basically took over the rooftop of a building illegally. We had nothing for decorations. Scott Ski came and cooked this incredible meal with a barbecue grill. And we got a bunch of cherry pickers, which were loaned to us by a neighboring construction company, and put spotlights on them. And halfway through the dinner, we turned on all the spotlights, and they were all pointing onto the High Line. Wow. Which was, it was a part of it that was particularly overgrown. And it looked like we had, it looked like a gigantic 100-foot-long flower arrangement that we had just done for the party. Of course, it was just what was there. And... Everyone who was at that dinner got it. And we kept doing that again and again and again um, and eventually built a base of support for it. But, you know, you can do that with almost any organization, somehow bring it to life. I think that events are these incredible platforms, incredible opportunities for communication about a brand or about a cause. Yeah, that's the thing. It's not just about a party and celebration and the decadence and frivolity. I was blown away when you told me about the Charity Water event. Can you talk about that? Uh, Charity Water did this famous thing where they just made the guests carry two uh, 10-gallon buckets of water 100 feet, and everyone understood what the 600 million people in the world who have to walk five miles a day are dealing with to carry their water. Something like that is so simple. It doesn't cost any money, but it tells the entire story. We've done this too with brands where we did a thing for Van Cleef a couple of years ago where we were, it was a high jewelry collection and we were unveiling it to their clients and it was inspired by four gardens and we took the ground floor of the plaza hotel and we created inside it gardens, a French topiary garden an Italian herb garden, an English rose garden, a Japanese water garden. And as you passed through these spaces, you sort of came upon the jewels and you understood what the motivations were for the artists who'd made them. That's great because then it's in situ and you have that whole immersive feeling. That's the point. But that's what all your events do. You really create a 
transformative space that you move through and you feel like you've been kind of I think it's beamed. like theater, you know, a party. And I think it needs acts. And you want to have this notion of a narrative journey. We have limited attention spans, increasingly more limited these days. Mm-hmm. And we need things to happen. We have a 20-minute rule for all the events that we do. Something has to change every 20 minutes. Wow, that's fast. Change the food, change the lighting, change the place, change the people. Uh, Someone comes in, someone goes out, something. And the point is, I mean, it can be as easy as just serving shots of tequila, but the point is that we have these limited attention spans now. And so we need sort of constant stimulation and surprise. And as a good host, I want to give people what they need. And we were talking about charity before. I mean, the point there is to make a real visceral connection between the cause and the guest. But when it's a private party, and the point is just to have fun, really what I hope happens, well, I, I really hope someone gets laid because, <laughs> because they never forget. That's always an amazing party for them. But no, what really happens is people share memories. They share experiences that they wouldn't share otherwise, and they create memories. And that's priceless. Do you find that in the 20 years that you've had Van Wyck and Van Wyck that the attention has shifted to social media and and pressure on you to create Instagram-worthy tableau or moments or anything like that? Sure. I mean, yes, it absolutely has. But luckily, one of my second or third jobs was as a set designer. So I'm used to creating a backdrop for, for that kind of thing. There is a component of them, which is always kind of about visual representation, to people who aren't at the party. So we think about that. Where do you get the ideas, by the way? You write about parties. I do. You have parties in your show. Where do you come up with these parties? Because some of them are really good. I've actually gotten some ideas from some of the parties. Yes, of course. Well, I feel like none of them are entirely original because they'll be like a white party or denim and diamonds or some kind of theme that you hear about. And I kind of laugh because I can't believe it's real. But um, denim and diamonds was one in the Hamptons that my parents used to get invited to. And we don't go to the Hamptons, but my mom would, you know, I'd see like a cowboy boot invitation lying around, you know, and I would just sort of imagine what that would be like. It's not necessarily things I attended, but just by osmosis now through social media, you can almost feel like you were there. So I feel like I'm just calling different images I've either seen in person or through the internet. But um, parties are a great way since I write about this kind of Upper East Side world to, they're emblematic of sometimes being over the top. The thing I love about- We don't do over the top. Right. Like, well, what I love about (laughs) yours is that they're sold. No matter what the budget is, it could be you know, a charity event that's pro bono or a beautiful wedding, but they have soul and that's an alchemy that money can't buy really. So I've been to parties as have you, I'm sure as a guest where something's missing. And I think it's the care that you're talking about with the shift every 20 minutes or a new something, you know, projected on the wall that's fascinating and eye-opening, but Sometimes you can have like all the money in the world to throw at a party and it just doesn't have that crackle and that magic that you create. And so I want to ask, what are some of the just bullet point tips you could give listeners about entertaining that really stir that up? I try to really understand what makes them tick. I try to understand what their aesthetic sensibility is. I try to understand kind of what love and friendship and hospitality and graciousness means to them. And then I try to take, elicit those I, qualities. Elicit those things from the host and then translate them into experiences that the guests will have that make the event feel personal. And so 
when the guests come, they never would say, oh, you know, Mimi or Bronson or Mary Lynn must have worked on this. They would say, oh my God, this, Jill, this is so you, this right. party. It's a manifestation of your, but what if you're just working with like a flaming cunt? Like what if your client is a shithead? Mm. Like you must have worked with people who don't have those qualities. We don't ever have. Really? No, have you all, ever fired a client? All of our clients are really wonderful. Oh, yeah. They're all <laughs> polishing their halos. So you've never fired a client? I have, yes. Like you just wasn't the right fit and you knew they were too difficult? I felt like we couldn't help them achieve what it was that they wanted to achieve. I felt like we weren't going to succeed for them. I wouldn't say fire either. I mean, it was just sort of- not accept. It was six months before the event and I just said, you know, this we're not going to be a good value for you. And here's three people you can call. You have six months. You have plenty of time. I mean, I would never do that at the- Final hour, hour, right? Yeah. Leave them at the altar. Speaking yeah. of altars, do you find that weddings versus milestone birthdays are, are more stressful? Like, is there a type of event that you prefer or they're all the same? You just have it down to a science now. I love to do weddings. I mean, we're getting invited into this incredibly- important moment in the life of a family. There's a level of intimacy and emotional engagement that we have when we're working on a wedding that is, it's not duplicated in any other kind of project. It's a lot. And so, I mean, we never really do more than eight or 10 weddings in a year because this sort of level of emotional commitment is so great. I mean, it is going to be the most important day of their lives, right? right? In theory. And we have to treat it that way in every conversation, every meeting, every interaction that we have with them through the life of the project. And you can't summon that up all the time. All the time, right. Right? So it's really fun and exciting to do it when we do it, but it couldn't be the only thing that we do. What I find about weddings is, actually this is more in the nature of advice. Look toward your marriage. Don't look toward your wedding. Yep. It's over in five hours. Nothing about the wedding is more important than the marriage that's to follow it. It's a beginning. It's not an end in and of itself. And which is not to say, don't take it seriously. Don't make it a knockdown, drag out, amazing, fun time. Don't ignore the sacred part of this union between you and your spouse. Weddings are funny because there really are two really distinct parts to it. There is that sacred part. I mean, it's a sacrament in every religion of the two people coming together and basically seeking the blessing of the community around them and the commitment of the community around them to support them. And then there's the profane part, which is the party. Let's have fun. Let's go be crazy and celebrate. And, you know, I think to the degree that one's able to separate those things, it makes the party more fun and it can make the ceremony more special. But I think the thing that you mostly see with weddings is that it's two families coming together. Yeah. People are in love with love. Everyone has a, but everyone has expectations about what's going to happen. They also have expectations or or desires or or, there's a a huge amount of self-representation going on with a wedding because you're not just saying who you are. You're also kind of saying who you want to be seen as with the way you entertain at something like a wedding. And different members of a family can have different opinions about that. And at the end of the day, somebody's also paying for it. Right. So they get a vote. The bride gets a vote. The groom may or may not get a vote. It depends. Speaking of families, Mm. can you talk a bit about, I'm obsessed with your family. I love your parents. I love your sister and brother-in-law. Can you talk a bit about how you all work as a team and how you've enveloped them in your business? It's very 
obvious when you read Born to Party, Forced to Work, how much your family has permeated your life and how the love in your family and respect for each other has created is, you know, so many of these events have your family laced into it and occasions and I love your childhood photos. And I think a lot of people, that's like their nightmare is to work with their parents or their siblings. Well, you can't fire each other. So that's, <laughs> that. But that. talk a bit about how they always supported you. I mean, I know freshman year in college, you threw parties that were legendary off campus and didn't feel like a college party. I felt like a grown up sitting on a Moroccan poof with a glass of champagne and cool lighting. It didn't feel like a frat house type of thing. Mm. Um, I just wanted friends. You had a million friends, but talk a bit about how they help you and how you all work together. Well, I mean, I grew up in this family. We were really isolated geographically. We were on a farm. Our closest neighbors were three miles away. Those were my grandparents. We were 100 miles from Little Rock. We were 100 miles from Memphis. If people had come to see us, they had really, they had come far. The whole family lived on the farm. I mean, extended family too, cousins and aunts and uncles. And we all were close. We all, I mean, every day almost, there was one meal where we all had it together. And whoever in the family had guests, the guests were of course invited. So there were always actually even outsiders there. I would say that my grandparents set the tone for this, but in terms of their lives, they looked outward. They were engaged with the outside world. They traveled, they went all over the world. But to them, people fell into two categories, family and everybody else. So they had great friends who they adored, but actually nothing was more important than the family. And I feel that way with my family and actually with some friends who have become part of my sort of chosen family, mm -hmm. I guess. And when we work together, the most wonderful thing that happens is I get to see my sister or my mother do this thing that they love doing, that they're sublimely good at. Imagine having a sister who's an opera singer and you get to go see her at La Scala. That is how it feels like when my mom, you know, who's in her 70s now, she's producing an event and she's in the video booth with the VJ and she's changing the music and she's telling some, no, we need more hip hop here. Let's raise the bass. I mean, this is really fun. And I'm very proud of them. When you do events for your family, do you find that because it means so much to you that the lines are blurred between what you do and being a guest and wanting to enjoy every second? Are you still worrying about you know, the behind the scenes. Can you surrender that to your elves? You know, I surrender it because I want to have fun at parties like that. And I think that that should apply to hosts and hostesses all the time. I talk about this a lot in the book. I think that for any party, whether it's four people coming over for drinks or a wedding or a surprise birthday party for your spouse, your guests are coming because they love you. You may not have invited all of them because you love them. You might have invited some because you need to invite them, but they're coming because they care about you and they like you and they want to see you having a good time. The most important thing that a host can do to make a party great is to have a good time himself or herself. And there's always something that's going to go wrong. Always, always, always something is going to go wrong. And you can handle it with humor. If it's unnoticeable, it's sort of, I always you know, say, never complain, never explain, keep going. Because chances are, something that doesn't happen. People didn't know what they didn't know that to. it was ever supposed to happen, right? 
But even if it's something that is noticeable, Rena Sendi had her big birthday party in Saint-Tropez a couple summers ago. We were at a restaurant. It was 200 people. The restaurant kitchen just couldn't get the food out. They just couldn't get it done. And so we had the first course because it was family style on the table when we sat down. And an hour and 40 minutes later, the the main course hadn't come. And, <laughs> There's alcohol. And so what do you do if you're the hostess? You, you know, she got her husband up. She got her whole table up, led a line around the room, got everyone from their tables up. And we went out to the dance floor and started having fun. Meanwhile, she ordered 60 pizzas from the best pizza parlor. That's leadership. On the Riviera. And so 20, 20 minutes into the dancing, pizzas start coming out with these waiters See, on silver better. trays. This was fabulous. Nobody wanted to eat turbo or lou de mer yeah, um, yeah. with some kind of French sauce. Like we had incredible pizza. And so she made it into Yeah, you a have positive. to be adaptive and go with Just the Just adapt, adapt. That's good advice, I think. And, you know, it's also adapt, but prepare. Because there are lots of things you can do to get ready so that when the moment comes, you can be present. Right. And that means you don't need to serve a souffle if you don't have anybody helping you in the kitchen because that's, that's going to take you away from the table for 25 minutes. And the table is really where the host needs to be. You can make a punch and put it out in a big bowl and you're not having to be the bartender all night. You can make a playlist so you don't have to be constantly going back and forth to be your own DJ. And all those things allow you to engage with the guests, which is what they're coming there. Yeah, that's the really, whole point. They're coming for that. And like w- when I came to your house for dinner the other night, you came bounding up to greet us when we came in. And I had people with me that you didn't even know. And you wrapped them up in warmth well, and I'm graciousness. I'm so happy to have people and over to my house because I don't leave my house. <laughs> well, I'm always grateful people tracked, especially my downtown friends like you. That means a lot to people to just get a smile when you come in. I mean, I like to add a, add a shot of tequila with it yeah, too. Yeah, sorry, which, I didn't have a tray. Yeah, you did. No, glowing. you did. It came right around. The, the guy came and said, well, you know, what do you want to drink? We said tequila. He said, oh, I got you. I got you. Oh yeah, we have like a million tequilas. What is a professional hazard for you now? Like Jean Beinart, our classmate from college, she loved ice cream and then she spent a summer scooping ice cream in Colorado and never touched it again. Do you have a problem now just like going to a party and do you see the flaws? Do you see too much? Like I know chefs who, you know, when they go to another restaurant, they're criticizing everything. I, the, the, the biggest thing I feel when I go to a party is just profoundly grateful that I'm invited, that I'm included. And on some level, probably grateful that I'm not working that night. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, do I notice things? Yeah, of course I notice things, but I never have an opinion about somebody else's party. I, d- I have too many opinions. It's torture. I'll yeah, see, right? I'll see a show or a movie and be like, how am I waiting in development and this is greenlit? It drives me fucking crazy. I wish I was as zen as you. You've been spending a lot of time in England. I love England. Well, Harry, my husband, had an office there for seven years, which has since shuttered, but I became so addicted that we still go for the month of July, and I love it. There's a lot of buyers there that are interested in content from American writers, but, you know, it's just such a long, drawn-out process. It's kind of torturous, but but that's okay because I get to chill out with the kids and read your beautiful book and other books that I haven't been able to digest yet. How do you come up with the ideas for, say, you're doing a sketch show? 
I mean, honestly, that is truly just osmosis. And all of the cold opens for Odd Mom Out were sketches that happened in real life, like where I was attacked by 10 people for not having seen Hamilton and telling me how sorry they feel for me and that they sent their housekeeper six times to see it. So I feel like that was all real shit. And then when I was talking to my producer, she said, what's your favorite thing to write? Whether it's articles or your books or for television, I said, the cold opens of Odd Mom Out. I mean, I wrote, I think all 30 episodes, I did the cold opens because they're just little vignettes to drop you into a moment with these types. And she said, well, why don't we just make a show of those? So that's really what the genesis was for snobs. But I do feel like, especially as you were saying with the short attention spans, there are these little nuggets that can go viral that are standalone four-minute sketches, but they all sort of intertwine through these tangential characters. It's really interesting to me with something like a cold open because you have such a finite amount of time, right? You've got to be really quick. Mm -hmm. You've got to deliver uh, in that amount of time. And what it does in a way, because you don't have time for a big amount of nuance, you really have to fall back on kind of as you say, archetypes or maybe stereotypes. How do you use stereotypes in humor today? Well, in, it's in, a great question, especially because everything is PC, which I think is good. I'm not someone who shits on PC. I think comedians should be careful to not be offensive and you know have these stereotypes that are demeaning or mean-spirited. And I, I will say, odd mom out, there was not one writer in the writer's room that was mean. I mean, we would sometimes have laughs that you have like a guilty cackle or something, but we never wanted to take anyone down and eviscerate them because I actually don't, that makes me uncomfortable when I'm watching it. I would say an example of stereotypes can be a bratty child, just in general, where it's not saying all children, obviously, but kids saying something where they're clearly parroting the parent. Um, that's always funny to me or pronouncements of you must do this or this is over. And just sometimes you hear people with this really extreme talk. And when you more think of it as a satirical thing rather than tearing them down, it's more of like a funhouse mirror. So right. that's what I feel like Odd Bomb Out did. And that's what Snobs does. It's not, it's not harsh on a type. It's just, you know, letting them speak for themselves. So if it's like a new money flashy person, <laughs> they dig their own grave. They might dig their own grave. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's uh, it's always different punching up versus punching down. Yes. Too. I yes. mean, I think that's really. Yes, that's the big difference. It's, that's important. I think that some of these people, they're hoisted by their own petard. It's their behavior, their quotes. I'm really not, some of the craziest shit in the show, I did not write. It's just from the table next to me at Via Quadrono. So you just pick it up and you can have fun with it that way. But it is people who I think it, it stems from an insecurity and showiness as masking something else. You know, we did a party once and we put mirrors everywhere. And what I learned that night was that actually no matter what we do, no matter how beautiful we make a space, people actually just really like to look at themselves. <laughs> I don't. I don't um, even have a full-length mirror. Well, what I was going to say is, is they like to look at themselves when they're Dressed up, At maybe. their best. Yes, that's true. And you, obviously, with your books and your show, are in some ways creating a mirror and showing them their own reflection. What has been the response from people in the groups, in, in, the, in, in the neighborhood? They are like high-fiving me. I've never had anyone say that they felt uncomfortable about it because I think every mother thinks they're a good mother. So I maybe had one person who said they read a book of mine and said that character farms out all the 
children, child work to a fleet of nannies. And she said, I realized when I read your book that I do that and I should spend more time with my kids. That was the only time, but it wasn't that she was reacting, feeling judged. Mm. It was just these different types of mothers in Momzilla's. The, the mirror helped then. Yeah, it did case. in that one case. I think most people feel like they're really hands-on even if they say, oh, code brown, get over here. And they <laughs> hand it off to somebody in a zip-up outfit. But um, I don't know. I For me, it was partly jealousy because I didn't have that. I mean, I never grew up with live and help, so I didn't feel comfortable having someone in my house, but I didn't, I was... 28. Like I didn't really want it anyway, or nor could I afford it. But I was sitting there like elbow deep in bath time and exhausted. And I would see these people who every hair was in place and they were dressed perfectly. And I was envious just because they seemed like they had their shit together and I felt like a train wreck. But I I wouldn't want to trade places either. It was just a tricky moment in my life. I had three kids in four years and yeah, I was a total train wreck and I looked like Urban Outfitters threw up on me and I didn't feel stylish. I didn't feel sexy or cute, but you see people who appear to have it all together and what the books were showing is they also have their own issues and there's pressure in spinning all those plates and maybe they don't have the connection with their kids. You really portrayed a particular moment in motherhood too. I mean, sort of in terms of the kids, a certain age. Mm -hmm. As you've grown and as your children are starting to grow up and get older, will your new work sort of be dealing with teenagers? Yes. And the I, problems of teenagers. It's funny. I I have I'm a freak. Like I everyone loves babies and their uterus hurts when they see a pregnant woman and they say, Oh, don't aren't you jealous? And I say, No fucking way. Like I love having teenagers. I think in my head I'm a teenager. I'm very into talking things out and I'm like a therapist with them. And I think it's really fun to discuss all that shit. Whereas a meltdown of a two-year-old screaming in a restaurant gave me such agita that I would be like shaking with the corkscrew at 5 p.m. I just needed to decompress. <laughs> I can't handle irrational behavior. So with, you know, I have two teenage girls in the house, one of whom, by the way, Ivy Kargman, obsessed with you. She idolizes with Bronson. She loves Bronson because she... We had a dinner party last month and she said, I want to sit with the grownups tonight because she's over the kids' table and she idolizes Bronson. But she curled up with Born to Party, forced to work for five hours during that snowstorm and cover to cover read every single page you wrote. She's like, he's also a really good writer. I don't know if this book is appropriate for a 13-year-old. Oh, she's seen it all. You hear, I curse in front of my kids all the time. Born to party, first to work. Great gift. You are awesome, <laughs> Bronson. I love you so much. I'm so, so nice so to glad see you. Here. So nice to see you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For conversations you can't ignore, come back every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. Subscribe now and never stop learning. <laughs>